Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is researching the near-death experience. My guest is Dr. Bruce Grayson. He is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. He is co-author of a wonderful uh, anthology called Irreducible Mind. He is co-editor of the Handbook of Near-Death Experiences. He is the developer of the Grayson Scale, the most widely used psychological instrument for measuring near-death experiences. And his newest book is called After. A doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm delighted to be talking to you. We're going to look at, really, your book after is sort of a career retrospective. Let's start with uh, your first encounter uh, with Raymond Moody after he had written uh, his book, Life, was it Life After Life or Life Before Life? Yes, Life After Life, yes. You met him uh, shortly after that book was published, as I recall. That's right, that's right. I was newly on the faculty at the University of Virginia in the psychiatry department, and Raymond was just starting his internship with us. Uh, and he had written the book within the year before that, and it was published by us, um, Mockingbird Books in, in uh, St. Simons Island, Georgia, a very small press. Very few copies were published. And he started his internship, and I was one of his uh, first supervisors in his first rotation in the emergency room. And he told me about his book, I hadn't heard about it, and I read it and talked with him about it, and I was astounded at this. Um, I had had an encounter with a patient a few years earlier who was unconscious when I tried to interview her, and she claimed to have left her body and followed me down to the, the hall to another room where she heard me talking to her roommate, and she repeated the conversation with the roommate almost verbatim. I, I just didn't know what to make of that. Um, I had never encountered anything non-physical before, and I didn't think it was possible. I thought, she's playing a trick on me somehow. I couldn't figure out how. But after I read Raymond's book and realized that this was not just one isolated event, but something that was happening all over the world to millions of people, I started taking it seriously. As it happened, shortly after that, uh, Bantam Press in, in New York picked up the rights to Raymond's book and republished it, and it sold three million copies the first year. Uh, so I got him just before the rush did. I gather Raymond wrote that book while he was still a student. Yes, yes. Uh, he was um, actually he was a, a professor of, of philosophy uh, before he went to medical school, and he specialized in in Greek philosophy. And he had encountered accounts of near death experiences in the Greek uh, literature. And shortly after that, um, he met. Dr. George Ritchie, a psychiatrist in Charlottesville, who had had a near-death experience and told Raymond about it. And Raymond recognized it as something he'd heard about in, in the ancient Greek literature. So when he started his medical school, 
she started asking patients who had been resuscitated about their experiences. And he collected enough accounts from his patients to publish this book uh, in 1975. That intrigued you enough to begin to, to want to study it scientifically. Right, right. Uh, Raymond was, at that time, once the book was published by Bantam, was getting a, a slew of letters every day from people. Um, and he didn't have time to deal with them because he was an intern. He had a busy work schedule. So he brought them to me and said, what can we do with these? And I started reading them, and, and everyone was starting out by saying, Thank God I'm not alone. There were people who had any death experiences, hadn't dared tell anyone about that until they read Raymond's book. And then they realized, I'm not crazy. I'm part of something that's greater than this. Um, so at that time, uh, at the University of Virginia, uh, Ian Stevenson had this division that studied anomalies in mind-brain relationships. So I took these letters to, to uh, uh, Ian Stevenson uh, and said, we need to do something with these. So we started studying them, writing to these people and collecting stories of our own. And that started out trying to understand what these are all about. And now, 50 years later, I'm still trying to understand them. Raymond is generally given credit as being the person who opened up the study of near-death experience. I believe he even coined the term near-death experience. But you, you point out there was earlier work uh, going back to the turn of the 20th century in Germany. Well, that's right. In fact, um, there were accounts from a variety of, of, of civilizations that we don't have, uh, we weren't aware of at the time. But actually, the term near-death experience uh, was first coined by uh, Victor Regere in France, um, experiences de mort imminent in the 1890s. But Raymond was the first one to use the, the term in English. Um, so he really gave us not only the name, but an outline of what the experiences were like. And that, of course, caught the attention of a lot of people in the United States. And at one point in about 1978 or 79, enough people had written to Raymond saying, I want to study this, that he got them all together at the University of Virginia. And we had this conference that lasted a weekend with Kenneth Ring and Michael Sabom and John Odette and about a dozen other people. And we outlined how we wanted to go about trying to study these phenomena. That's when you, I gather you created the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Right. That was the, the seed of the organization. It took actually a few years to get it uh, established. Um, we tried to get Raymond, in fact, to lead the organization. He wanted no part of it. He's not an organization person. <laughs> he said, you do it with my blessing. Um, so we started out, actually, uh, Ken Ring was the first president. I was the vice president. Um, Mike Sabom was the secretary, and, and uh, John Odette was kind of the executive uh, director. Well, at some point, you made a decision to move out of the University of Virginia. You wanted to uh, be in an environment where you would get yourself more rigorous training in scientific research. So, so you went to the University of Michigan. Right, right. The University of Michigan was a huge research institution. And I went there hoping I would learn more about the, uh, the, the subtleties about writing grants and, and getting good research um, skills. So I did that. And I spent uh, six years there and had some wonderful mentors there who really taught me what you need to do to get yourself established in solid uh, medical research. Uh, and that really s saved my career, I think. 
And I presume that that's where you developed the Grayson scale. Um, yes, I never called it that. <laughs> I never wanted to be called that. I called it the NDE scale. And I did that uh, actually in collaboration with a number of other people. Um, I collected the literature at that point uh, of near-death experiences and found out about there's about 80 phenomena in the NDE that were repeatedly mentioned. Things like uh, time slowing down, thoughts going faster, seeing lights, and so forth. And I gave this list of 80 uh, features to a group of near-death experiencers and asked them, which ones do you think are the essential parts of the NDE? And they whittled it down a bit. And then I gave that list that they whittled down to a bunch of near-death researchers and had them whittle it down. And I went back and forth between the experiencers and the researchers until I got a group of 16 phenomena that they all, all agreed on. And that became the NDE scale. Well, I, I want to go into that in more depth, but I also want sure. to jump back a little bit because you mentioned the uh, point that time slows down. And yes, a, yes. A fascinating episode in, in your book. It goes back to the earlier work in Germany that uh, yes. you wrote about in, in which there's a, a suggestion that Einstein's theory yes. of relativity, that Einstein claims basically that the faster you go, time slows down so that if, right. if you're at right. the speed of light, uh, time stops completely. And people yeah. say, well, Einstein was able to visualize what it would be like traveling on a beam of light. But you suggest that it's possible Einstein got the idea because of near-death research in Germany. That's right. That's right. It was actually uh, one person, Albert von St. Gallenheim, who was a, a geology professor at the Zurich Polytechnic Institute. And earlier in his life, he had been climbing in the Alps, and he slipped and he fell. And he actually fell 60 feet uh, down to the bottom of the mountain. And as he fell, he repeatedly crashed against the rocks, getting bloodier and bloodier. And he wrote in his, in his write-up about this that he had previously watched people fall, and it was terrifying to see them fall. But when he himself was falling, it was a blissful experience. And he said he left his body, and he watched his body repeatedly crashing against the rocks, and he felt nothing. And time slowed down for him, and his thoughts speeded up, so that he had time to think about how he needed to twist around as he was falling, so he'd land in the snowdrift rather than in a pile of rocks. And he had time to think about whether he should take his glasses off so they wouldn't get broken. He thought about uh, the classes he had to teach. He thought about his loved ones who would leave behind if he died. All this in a matter of like three or four seconds that it took him to fall. He was so impressed by this experience that he started asking other mountain climbers and quickly found 30 other cases just like his. So he published these in 1892 in the yearbook of the Swiss Alpine Club. After that, he started mentioning this experience to all his students in geology. And Albert Einstein, at the age of 17, I believe it was, took the first course in geology from Heim. And Heim mentioned this experience where as he was falling, time slowed down more and more. And the faster he fell, the slower time got. Einstein eventually took two classes from Heim. He, was, he liked it so much. And after Heim died, actually, he wrote a letter to Heim's son telling him how much he enjoyed these, quote, magical uh, lectures that Heim gave. And it was about 15 years later that, that Einstein wrote about his theory of relativity in which he posits 
time slowing down as you go faster and faster. What an interesting episode. Now, to go back to the uh, scale, which to my knowledge has always been called the Grayson scale, uh, it, it's really been the standard test used by uh, near-death researchers now for many decades. Yes, yes. It was Melvin Morse who first called it that, and I've tried to get people to stop, and they, I can't do it. But anyway, it has been translated into about 25 languages and used in hundreds of, of studies all around the world. And it has been um, the gold standard. Um, it's now about, um, f- well, almost 40 years old. Um, and it could probably use some updating. And in fact, there are a couple of groups, um, Sam Parnia in New York and um, a group at the University of Liège in Belgium, headed by Charlotte Martial, who are developing uh, revisions of the NDE scale. And we'll see how that works out. But we have, we've learned a lot about NDEs since I developed that scale, for example, there was nothing in the scale about unpleasant near-death experiences. Uh, there was nothing in the scale about ineffability, about these experiences being beyond words. So it might help to in- include some of those things in the scale at this point. You know, Bruce, a lot of people are probably uh, watching this video and looking at you. You're an emeritus professor. <laughs> you had yes. uh, a distinguished academic career. But what I found really fascinating in your book is some of the struggles that you had to mm. go through. And uh, for example, uh, when you were at the University of Michigan and, and doing this brilliant work, developing this scale, mm. which is now the standard, you, you were told by a department chair that uh, you had to stop near-death research altogether or, yes. or they wouldn't promote yes. you. Right, right. Well, uh, it was more than promotion. It was a matter of keeping my job. Um, as I said, Michigan was a great research university, but they wanted to study things you can you know, see and feel and touch and measure and quantify. And they didn't feel that subjective things like personal experiences were worth studying. Um, their impression was that non-medical people can study those things. Medical people should deal with, you know, blood and guts, stuff like that. So they said, you know, if you want to stop looking at that and, and get, get serious about medical research, we'd love to have you here. But if you insist on doing near-death research, you should look elsewhere. So I did. <laughs> I gave a lot of thought to this because I loved my work there. I loved uh, treating patients and supervising uh, residents and medical students. And it, was, it would have been a, a huge loss to give that up. Uh, plus, you know, my wife was, was teaching there and we had kids there. But I really thought about it and I thought, you know, near-death experiences are a challenge to, to scientists. Um, and if you're going to be honest about, about the science you do, you can't just say, this is hard to study, so I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. So that's, to my mind, that's not, that's not honest. That's uh, not, not ethical. So I thought... To be true to my science, I really have to continue studying these near-death experiences. So I looked for a job elsewhere and, and uh, thankfully found a great one at the University of Connecticut uh, and spent about 11 years there. Well, I, I think it was probably at the same time when you were at Michigan, you and uh, Ian Stevenson managed to co-author an article published yes. in the <laughs> Journal of the American Medical Association suggesting that maybe researchers should pay a little bit of attention to near-death experience. Right. And uh, a, a senior medical uh, researcher <laughs> took umbrage at that article. 
Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, we did. As you said, we did publish an article in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association uh, saying what near-death experiences were and, more importantly to my mind, why it's important for doctors to know about them and study them. And the chairman of the orthopedic surgery department uh, in New York wrote a very angry letter to the lay editor saying, this is no business being in a medical journal. This is religious stuff, nothing to do with medicine. And thankfully, the, uh, the editor sent the letter to us and said, would you like to respond to this? And so we did. Um, but I was frankly terrified at that point. I was fairly junior in my career. And I thought, oh, this, this guy is going to really blow things up and, and it's going to be the end of my, my job. Um, but nothing came of it. Um, he published his letter, we published ours, and it's like it never happened. And there's one other episode you write about in your book, which I, I think is very telling about people who do pioneering research such as you've done. Uh, you were about to, as I recall, uh, give a presentation at a major oh, yeah. scientific symposium on uh, near-death experiences, and you had a nightmare uh, the, <laughs> the night before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were presenting about near-death experiences at the American Medical Association uh, around 1980. And I had I was being part of a panel with Mike Sabom and a few other people. And I was lying in my bed in the hotel the night before I was supposed to give my talk. And I had a dream in which I was expanding. And I was I had left the earth and I was going out into the universe. And I was getting very, very large. And I realized it wasn't because um, my molecules were getting large. It was that they were getting farther and farther apart from each other. And it felt like I was losing my integrity as, as a, a single entity. And I was, my, my consciousness was rushing back and forth between one molecule and another, trying to get them back together. And I, they were getting farther and farther apart. And I woke up at that point in a cold sweat, just terrified. I knew it was just a dream. I knew it wasn't real. But it was a terrifying experience. And, you know, being a psychiatrist, I had to think, what is this all about? And I decided what this was about was this is a metaphor for what I was going to do the next day. That I was going too far out, too fast, and in danger of losing my integrity. So I thought long and hard about it. And the next day I gave a much more modest uh, talk that was a little less far out than I would have planned. Um, interestingly, uh, Decades later, um, I had another dream that was essentially the same. Uh, I was expanding into the universe and my molecules were getting farther apart. But this, at that point, it was not a terrifying experience. It was a blissful one. And there are a lot of reasons why that might have been, but I'd like to think that part of the reason was that I had matured some in the intervening 40 years and had become more comfortable with, with the unknown. Well, the near-death experience from all accounts is a pointer towards the possibility of uh, the survival of human consciousness after the death of the body, uh, even though, of course, all the experiencers return to their body or they couldn't report about it. Uh, mm, never, right. Nevertheless, they all come back and say that they, they no longer fear death almost universally. Right. Right, right. I think, I think I like your word, a pointer uh, to the possibility of survival. Uh, people often jump to the fact that, that, or the idea that it's proof, and I don't think it's proof, but it's certainly strong evidence uh, for, for survival. Um, the way I understand it, 
they are very, very strong evidence for the fact that, that you can continue to think and feel and perceive and make decisions when your body, when your brain is not functioning. It suggests that the mind can function without the brain, which is kind of counterintuitive because in normal life, it seems like the mind and the brain are the same thing. The mind is what the brain does. When you get intoxicated, that affects your thinking. But in exceptional circumstances, like a near-death experience, when the brain seems to be shutting down, the mind seems to be freed up to experience a far wider range of consciousness than, than normal. And there are other experiences too that point in the same direction. We've done some neuroimaging studies in the last decades with people having uh, mystical experiences with psychedelics. This is done at Johns Hopkins University here in the US and at Imperial College in London. And they all show that the more mystical the experience is, the less electrical brain activity is going on. So we used to think that, that these drugs work by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. And what it appears to be is that they shut the brain down or the brain's filtering mechanism down so that the mind is free to experience all these other things it can't usually access. We also have uh, uh, terminal lucidity in which people with end-stage Alzheimer's or other dementias suddenly become totally lucid in the hours before they die or the days before they die. And there's no medical explanation for how the brain can regenerate at that point. It's like the brain deteriorates so much that the mind is allowed to free itself from the brain and flourish again. So there's strong evidence for the fact that the mind can function when the brain is not. And if that's so, then that opens the possibility that the mind might continue to function when the brain has died, when the body has died. It's not proof, but it's strong evidence pointing in that direction. There's other evidence from NDEs that we survive, but we can get into that in a little while. One of, one of the most interesting phenomena that you report in your book, I think in the literature, technically, it's called a peak and Darien experience. Yes. Let, let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, many people, maybe 40% of people who have near-death experiences report encountering deceased loved ones in the NDE. And it's quite easy for debunkers to dismiss this as wishful thinking and expectation. You think you're dying, so of course you want to be reunited with deceased loved ones, so you imagine seeing them. And there's no way to counter that except for these peak and Darien experiences in which you see someone who was deceased, but you didn't know they were dead. In fact, no one knew they were dead at that time. And that's hard to explain away as expectation or wishful thinking. And there are accounts of this going back to ancient times. Pliny the Elder wrote about a great case of this in the first century with extensive documentation. And there are lots of reports in the 1800s, in the 1900s, in the literature of the Society for Psychological Research. My first encounter with this was um, a fellow from South Africa who is now living in the U.S., who at the age of 25 had a hospitalization with severe pneumonia, and he had repeated respiratory arrest episodes where he couldn't breathe. And he had one particular nurse who worked with him most of the time, who was about his age, and they became very friendly. And at one point she told him she was taking the long weekend off. So he wished her well, she, she went away. And the next day he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And he had a near-death experience in that arrest. And in his near-death experience, he was in a pastoral scene, and he saw this nurse, Anita, come walking towards him. And he couldn't understand that because she was 
you know, taking the weekend off. So we said to her, you know, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said, essentially, I, I'm here now, but you can't stay. You need to go back. And I want you to tell my parents that I love them and I'm very sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned and walked away. When he awoke back in his body in the hospital bed, he remembered this experience vividly. And he excitedly told the first nurse who walked into his room about it. And she started to cry and left the room immediately. It turned out that the nurse took the weekend off because it was her 21st birthday. And her parents surprised her with a gift of a red MGB. She got so excited about it, she jumped in the car, took off, lost control of the car, crashed into a telephone pole, and died instantly. This was shortly before his near-death experience. At the time, no one in the hospital knew she had died, and they certainly couldn't, couldn't have known how she died, and yet the patient did. And I don't know how to explain that, except for I possibility that somehow this deceased nurse was able to communicate with him in his NDE. I was curious as to why the term peak Indarian uh, refers to these experiences. I learned it, it has to do with a mountain peak on the uh, Isthmus of Panama, right. where the, the first explorers <laughs> right. climbed the peak and they were very surprised to be able to see the Pacific Ocean. Right, right, right. Francis Power Cobb wrote a book by this name in the 1890s, in which he described several cases like this of people who see things in the NDE that were totally unexpected. Um, as far as the Spanish explorers knew, this was a new continent. They didn't expect to see another ocean when they got up to the peak. Um, so they were surprised at the peak in Dari at the peak in Darien, which is in Panama, now current Panama, to find another ocean on the other side of it. So that became the name for these experiences of seeing deceased people who no one knew had died. Now, I, I know there are some... Uh I, I'm going to call them skeptics, but I think they're friendly skeptics in the parapsychology community who say, well, this is just ESP. It just shows you that uh, living people can uh, exhibit ESP. It's not necessarily proof of or even evidence uh, of, of the afterlife. Uh, do you deal with that at all in uh, your investigations? I don't. I, I, I'm not sure that I can take that hypothesis seriously. It's, it's one of those hypotheses that can never be disproven. If you accept the fact that ESP has no limits, then there's nothing that can't be explained by that. So it's a nice philosophical hypothesis. It's not a scientific hypothesis because it can't, nothing can disprove it. Um, now, there are some, uh, some accounts in which a deceased entity seems to act with its own intentions, its own uh, uh, desires that are consistent with that person's life when they were alive and not consistent with the experiencers, which suggests that the intent of this is coming from the deceased individual, not, not the, the, uh, the person having the experience. For example, this nurse saying, please tell my parents I'm sorry, right. <laughs> I wrecked, I wrecked yes. the new MGD. Yes. Right. Right. That probably wouldn't be the patient's first impulse. But. Most of your work, though, I gather, doesn't really fall into this realm of dealing with the technical arguments of philosophical parapsychologists. You're, right. The skeptics of the near-death experience, for the most part, have tried to say that it's, uh, it's oxygen, uh, in, lack of oxygen in the brain or right. other right. conventional explanations. Right. And I'm sympathetic with that because I started out my career 
as a materialist scientist, and I, I didn't know anything about the non-material world, the, the spiritual or religious world. So when I first encountered these experiences, I assumed it had to be something the brain does. And I've been trying to track down the, the data that can test all these hypotheses. And there have been now data collected to test the oxygen hypotheses. Uh, several people have studied oxygen level in people as they are near death. And what they find is that people who report near-death experiences actually have better oxygen, uh, oxygenation in the brain than people who don't report NDEs. Likewise, uh, we find that people who are given drugs when they are near death tend to report fewer near-death experiences than people who are not given drugs. So it's not the drugs that are causing people to hallucinate. We've tested one after another these hypotheses, and I go, the, go over several of them in the book, where it, it's a plausible hypothesis, but then when you collect data to test it, the data contradict the hypothesis. So we have not come up with any physiological hypothesis that can explain the near-death experience. Now, that doesn't mean we never will. It just means we haven't yet. There are critics of the near-death experience who also suggest uh, it's a form of mental illness, that uh, the percentage of people who have near-death experiences, and it's certainly not everybody who goes through a, a, a cardiac arrest or something similar, that the, these people have, a, I don't know, a volatile temporal lobe or uh, something else that makes them uh, uh, susceptible to abnormal experiences, such as mental illness. Right, 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 right. That's true. Only about 10 to 20 percent of people whose hearts stop report a near-death experience. So why is that? And we've tried to look at physiological and psychological traits of the people who do report NDEs, and we haven't really found anything that differentiates those who do and those who don't report NDEs. Now, as a psychiatrist, I looked at the question of mental illness. I looked at how common mental illness is among near-death experiencers. And it turns out to be the same frequency as people who don't have NDEs. I also looked at a sample of people who come to the hospital seeking help for their mental illnesses. I looked at the frequency of near-death experiences among those. And it's the same as it is among people who don't come for psychiatric help. So there seems to be no association at all, positive or negative, between near-death experiences and mental illness. Now, you can also say that there are some subtle psychological traits short of mental illness that may predispose people to NDEs. And there may be something in that. For example, people who are, uh, have greater access to their inner states, people who remember their dreams and so forth, are more likely to tell about a near-death experience. Uh, this has been called boundary thinness. It could have been called transliminality. Uh, but people who have access to... Um, What's going on inside their, their minds tend to be more likely to report an NDE. That may mean that they're more likely to have them, or it may mean that they're less likely to repress them and push them away when they have them, uh, because other people feel and find them frightening or distasteful to have. The interesting thing, uh, I think, is that most of the people, I gather maybe 80, 90 percent of near-death experiencers ultimately say it was a very positive experience for them. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, no matter how they describe uh, this, quote, afterlife experience, they say it is um, a, a, a very pleasant experience, nothing to be afraid of. The dying process and death itself seem to be 
positive experiences. Now, when I first heard end of year saying that, as a psychiatrist, I started worrying about whether this is going to make people suicidal. Because I've been dealing for a long time with people who were thinking about suicide, and many of them were deterred from that out of fear of what happens when they die. And if they find out nothing bad's going to happen, um, what's to stop them from killing themselves? So I did a study. You know, I'm a scientist also. So I looked at all the patients who were admitted to my hospital with a suicide attempt. And I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt and those who didn't. And what I found was that those who had an NDE as a result of the suicide attempt were far less suicidal than those who didn't have an NDE, which seemed counterintuitive. If they come back thinking death is wonderful, why would they be less suicidal? And when I put this to them, what they said basically was that when you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living. You know that death is not terrifying, so you're not afraid of losing your life, so you're more likely to live life to the fullest, to jump in, take some risks, and just dive in and enjoy life to the fullest, more than you could before when you were terrified of losing your life. And that has profound implications for how we do everything with our lives. In fact, there's a wonderful story you report about a near-death experiencer who, who said that after his experience, not only were the positive experiences in his life more pleasant, <laughs> even the negative experiences, which we all go through, became pleasant. Yes, this, this was uh, Australian John Ren Lewis, uh, who was actually <laughs> poisoned on, tri on a trip in, in Thailand. And he said that after that experience... He enjoyed life so much that even a common cold, would find, he would find that pleasant, looking at the different experiences, you know, the stuffy nose, the, uh, the sinus headaches, they become actually interesting to him. And he had been plagued by ringing in his ears for decades. That was always a problem for him. And after the NDE, when, they, when it recurred, he thought, oh, this is my old friend coming back. And he enjoyed the, the sensations. He just liked life so much, he, there's nothing about it that he couldn't enjoy. You even go further than that in your book, and this is one of the most fascinating findings that uh, people who learn about near-death experiences and in, in the cases where there are college courses and uh, the like, uh, these people report it's very positive just to know about them. There have been, I think, four studies now of college students who were taught a course in near-death experiences and they tested them for altruistic attitudes and behavior before the course and after, and then a year or two after the course is over. And they find that these students become more loving, more, more caring, more compassionate, and more altruistic in their behavior up to a year or two after the course ends. This was also done with a, a, a class of nursing students, and there was one high school class actually in Ohio where a teacher taught about near-death experiences, and they also became more altruistic after the NDE. Uh, Ken Ring describes this as the NDE is a, a benign virus that you can catch from other people. Um, now, actually, this is one of the reasons I decided to write my book, because I wanted to give everyone else who hasn't had an NDE some of the ways that NDEs change us, change the experiencer, hoping that maybe we can learn something from that and make some changes in our own life. Because the NDE, as much as it tells about what happens after death? Most NDEers say this is important is what they tell us about life before death, how to make life more meaningful, more fulfilling. And that's what I wanted to share with, with the readers.
But there is also the 8 to 10% of uh, experiencers who, who describe it so, as, as a negative experience, sometimes even hellish. Uh, what, can, what do we know about that? <laughs> Unfortunately, very little. Um, when we first started doing this research, we didn't hear any accounts of unpleasant NDEs, and we weren't even sure there were any. And then um, in the early 1980s, uh, I met Nancy Evans Bush, who was at that time the executive director of, of, of IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and she herself had had a, a frightening NDE. So she challenged me to study these things, and the two of us worked together, and we eventually found enough cases to publish an article in a mainstream psychiatric journal about these unpleasant NDEs. And we found that there were different types. There are some that are prototypically hellish with fire and brimstone and demons, a very small number of those. And only people who had been raised in a religion that preached about fire and damnation uh, talked about those things. There's a larger group that just found themselves in a black void for eternity with no sights, no sounds, just, just your consciousness and nothing to relate to. And we Westerners find that a terrifying experience. Interestingly, I've talked to a couple of people who were raised Hindu in, in the East who had an experience like that and thought it was blissful. And they thought this is was, this was nirvana now, I'm just here with nothingness. Uh, but the largest group of unpleasant near-death experiences phenomenologically sound just like the pleasant ones, but they're experienced in a terrifying way. For example, people will talk about being ripped out of their bodies and thrust down a tunnel at terrifying speed and then confronting this blinding light, and they're terrified of this experience. And they try very hard to resist it and try not to get out of the tunnel and so forth. And they struggle and struggle, and at some point, some of them get exhausted and just surrender. And as soon as they stop trying to fight it, it becomes a blissful experience. Now, my suspicion, although we haven't been able to test this rigorously enough, is that these are people who find it hard to not be in control of their lives. They're kind of on the obsessional end of things. It's important to stay in control. And in the NDE, no matter what it is, you're not in control of it. And that is a terrifying experience. And when they give up the need to be in control, it becomes blissful for them. You work closely with Evan Alexander, who is probably, in, in contemporary terms, the most prominent near-death experiencer. His books have uh, been bestsellers, uh, and he's been quite controversial. People have suggested he didn't even really have a near-death experience, but uh, you've worked with him closely. How do you evaluate his case? Well, as you said, you know, he published this book, the first book, Proof of Heaven, um, was a bestseller, and since he was a neurosurgeon and in his book described the struggle trying to understand this in neurophysiological terms and finally he couldn't do that, that got a lot of neuroscientists upset because it was challenging their worldview. So they started writing about how this didn't really happen, he was making it up, he wasn't really in a coma, he was in a drug-induced state and so forth. So there were these accusations flying back and forth and no one really had the data to know who was right and who was wrong. So I got Eben's permission to contact their ho the hospital where he, this happened. It wasn't the hospital where I worked. And I obtained his entire medical record, which was more than 600 pages long. He was in a coma for eight, seven or eight days. Um, 
and I had three copies of it, and I evaluated one and gave the other two to two different physicians, and the three of us independently evaluated the medical record, page after page after page, all the lab tests, all the doctor's and nurse's notes, and we decided that when we had finished, we would write up what we thought, then get together and try to reconcile our differences. When that happened, there were no differences. The medical record was entirely clear. There was no question at all. This guy was as dead as you can be without having his heart stop. His brain, he had a terrible infection, a rare infection of his brain that had a less than 1% chance of survival. And if he survived, there was virtually no chance that he would be functioning again. The CAT scans showed his whole skull filled with pus. You couldn't really see that the uh, wrinkles in the brain, it was all filled with pus. And his, he had what's called the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is a clinical scale doctors and nurses use to measure brain function. And that's done like three or four times a day during his, his entire uh, hospital course. And his was very, very low, showing very minimal brain function all the time he was there. And yet he had this near-death experience, a very deep experience. And there were a couple of times during his six-day coma in which he saw things going on in the hospital, in his hospital room, when his Glasgow coma scale showed that he was having virtually no brain function at all. And when I talked to people who were involved in his care, the things he described seeing were corroborated by them. He saw them accurately at times when his brain was not able to function. So I concluded that he was telling the truth and that the people who were criticizing him were not knowing what, what they were talking about. For example, they said that the coma was caused by drugs. Well, clearly the medical record shows that he fell into the coma before he was given any drugs at all. He was given drugs to stop him from having seizures. Uh, he had started to come out of the coma before the drugs were stopped. So the coma started before he was given drugs and it ended before the drugs ended. So the coma was not caused by the drugs he was given. And you know, each one of the criticisms that the, the debunkers tried to throw at him was disproven by his medical records. Again, I published that in another mainstream medical journal. Another interesting feature of the near-death experiences is that it's similar to certain normal experiences. You've referred to psychedelic drugs. Uh, there's also uh, many people report what, what is known in the literature as the out-of-body experience, which is quite, quite similar. Yeah, it's interesting you call those normal experiences because many people would not. Um, yeah, uh, the out-of-body experience is something that occurs in part of, as a part of many near-death experiences, people leaving their bodies and often seeing things accurately from an out-of-body perspective. It appears though that they're different in some ways. Uh, for example, the after effects. Many people who have out-of-body experiences because uh, in the case of a, a meditative state or uh, happens often in trauma, a lot of trauma victims report leaving their bodies. They don't have the same pattern of pleasant after effects that near-death experiences do. And that may be because it's a qualitatively different type of experience, or maybe because of the context. If you have the OBE, the out-of-body experience, when you're approaching death, that may give it a greater impact than if you have it when you're trying to achieve it. 
it's quite interesting. Uh, but the out-of-body experience, like the near-death experience, like uh, terminal lucidity, uh, these are all pointers, I think, to the uh, notion of uh, survival of human consciousness after the death of the the body. Now, another interesting pointer I've seen in the literature is one actually that involves the use of the Grayson scale. It was uh, done by a um, Buddhist meditation researcher in England. I've interviewed him several times. He calls it the meditation-induced near-death experience, where advanced Buddhist meditators go into a, a state of consciousness which scores very high on uh, the Grayson scale. Uh, how do you interpret that? The near-death experience is very similar to a lot of mystical states that occur in a variety of circumstances. And certainly, uh, experienced meditators can get into this state. And psychedelic drugs can, at times, produce this state. And various other uh, spiritual disciplines, um, uh, sensory deprivation and so forth, can produce a state like this. The near-death condition is just the most common way in our current culture to have this mystical state, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, and there are things about the near-death state that may affect the context in which the experience occurs and then therefore the after effects. I interviewed recently a near-death researcher, I'm sure you know well, Peter Fenwick, who said we, mm, we have to yes. be very clear about the precipitating conditions for each of these experiences. And it's often difficult to tell with, with some experiences. For example, many near-death experiences occur when you're not in a, in a condition where you can have um, physiological measures. Many people have a heart attack when they're out in the field, plowing their fields, or, or you know, when they're sitting at home. And there's no one there to measure their brain waves or their, their heart uh, uh, electrical activity and so forth. So we don't know, really, how close they came to death. We don't know whether their hearts actually stopped. Um, so we really can't tell what the precipitating event was in some of those cases. Well, ultimately, it, it seems as if whether it's near-death research or reincarnation research, which is also being done right where you are at the University of Virginia, yes. these things point, uh, I have to say explicitly, to the idea <laughs> of, of survival after death. But we live in a materialistic age, in a materialistic culture where materialistic values are dominant, especially in academia. So I, I have to imagine it's been kind of a balancing act for you to uh, do this research in that environment. It has been at times, but I have to say that the tide is changing and attitudes have changed dramatically in the 40, 50 years I've been doing this work. Um, you know, I was a materialist when I started, and I, I, I'm not now. I, I just can't imagine how a material conception of the world can explain these phenomena. Um, there must be some non-material aspect of us as humans that can explain some of these things. And some of the encouraging uh, data is that there have been studies recently of scientists in Scotland, in Belgium, in Brazil, and in the U.S. surveying what these scientists think about the mind and the brain. In each of these studies, about 50% of scientists say that the mind and the brain are separate things, that the mind is not just what the brain does. And that would not have been true if you had asked this 50 years ago. 
Well, Dr. Bruce Grayson, this has been a very informative, I would even go so far as to say enlightening conversation. Uh, your lifetime of research is a gift to everybody. So I, I'm very grateful to be able to be with you and to share this conversation with our viewers. Bruce, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And for those of you watching or listening, Thank you for being with us.